great to be together. It's nice to see all of you. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Simi Valley. It is always nice to come back here. Man, this is a big crowd. I know it probably feels small to you. I think the singles are out on a camping trip, and, and that's a good number of people. But for us in Simi Valley, this feels humongous. Matter of fact, I was just speaking up in Bakersfield a couple weeks ago, and they're twice the size we are in Simi Valley. If that gives you any idea, they felt like a big church to me, and they're a small church. So we're just a tiny little group out there in Simi Valley, and we desperately need your prayers. Amen? It is great to be here. I also want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, many of you may have heard, or some of you may not, of my mom was in a bad car accident a couple days ago. Uh, she's doing okay. She had to go through surgery, broke several bones, uh, but she's recovering and uh, really appreciate all the prayers. And some of you have asked what, what you can do, and I would just say at this point, please keep praying. It really is about her recovering. They're going to be transi- uh, transferring her from one hospital to another, and that's a good thing. That means she's gotten better, uh, but she's just kind of in a state where she wants to be uh, focused on her recovery for now. So when there is something uh, for you to do, just ask me, and I'll, I'll let you know at that point. But for the next few days, I think she wants to, to keep it on the down low. So don't tell her I told you, uh, and everything should be fine. As you can tell, in Simi Valley, we are also in the midst of a series entitled Thirst. Now, we have a different look to it. We've got the cool picture of the girl with her arms out in the wheat field, and we made a cool little music video, but it's the same concept. It's the same basic uh, uh, idea of a sermon series. And so today, uh, my sermon is going to be coming out of the Psalms, just like you guys have been doing, and we're going to focus specifically on Psalm 90. But before I begin, i got to tell you guys a joke. Now... According to the University of Hertfordshire, this is the world's funniest joke. And it's got to be true because I looked it up on the internet and it said that this is the world's funniest joke. And whenever you see something on the internet, you you immediately need to believe it because it is absolutely true. So here it goes. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are out camping. They go on a camping trip. They have a long hiking. They're out hiking, and they they come to their place, and they pitch their tents, and they sit down by the campfire, and they have their meal, and then it gets late, and they curl up in their sleeping bags and go to sleep for the night. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes sits straight up, startled awake, and he shakes Watson, and he says, Watson! I want you to look up into the night sky and tell me what you see. And Dr. Watson stares. And after a long pause, he says, you know, I see billions of stars. And they say that if even only 1% of those stars have planets, then that means there are millions of planets in the universe. And if those millions upon millions of planets are even 1% of them are like Earth, have a climate like Earth, then, then, it's, then it's possible that there are hundreds of thousands of planets just like our own out in the universe. And if that's true, and if even only 1% have the possibility for life, you know, ha- have life on them, then, then it's quite possible that there may be thousands of other planets out there just like Earth with life on them. So, Sherlock Holmes, we are not alone in this universe. And after a moment, Holmes turns to Watson and he He goes, you fool, someone stole our tent. (laughs) Turn with me to Psalm chapter 90. 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us the number of our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You know, the Psalms are prayerful words spoken to or about God. They're often full of colorful language. They're poetic in nature, and they often employ a lot of metaphor. And so it's important when you study a Psalm, when you read a Psalm, that you focus on the intent, not so much the literal meaning of the words. Now, the book of Psalms, I don't know if you are aware of this, but it's actually divided into five separate parts. There's, there's sort of, they call them books. There's five books in the book of Psalms. And each book is a collection of psalms that correspond thematically. In other words, they have a theme, and they correspond to a book of the Bible. Specifically, they correspond to the first five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, for instance, book one of the psalms, which goes from chapter 1 to verse 41, is connected. It corresponds loosely to Genesis, and the theme is good versus evil. Book 2, starting in verse, uh, Psalm 42 and going through Psalm 72, correlates with Exodus and the theme of deliverance. Psalm 90 is the beginning of book 4 of the Psalms, and so it correlates to, Levitic, to Leviticus, and it, or, I'm sorry, to the book of Numbers, and, it, and its theme is the sovereignty of God. Now, specifically, Psalm 90, which we just read, is a prayer for God's favor. Moses, the man of God, is asking for God's favor to be upon him and the the people of Israel, the Jewish people. This psalm was written by Moses. Now, conservative scholars feel confident in saying that. Liberal scholars feel less confident. They tend to think of it as the words of Moses sort of pieced together by other people. And as with most things, I tend to lean towards the conservative side of things. I believe that Moses did write this. It probably was written in relation or or after the events of Numbers chapter 14. Now, I don't have time to read Numbers chapter 14, but, but the basic story that happens in Numbers chapter 14 is that the people of God, the Israelites, the, the Jewish people, rebel. They refused to enter the promised land. 
If you don't know the story, it's, it's very, I, I can tell you very briefly, the Israelite people, the Hebrews, were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up Moses to be a deliverer. He led them out of their slavery into Egypt. And in about a year's time, they had seen the, the 10 plagues that brought, that brought the empire of Egypt to its knees. They fled Egypt. Then they were chased by the Egyptian army. God parted the Red Sea. They crossed through several million of them on dry land. And then the sea closed up and killed the Egyptian army. They went down to Mount Sinai where they, they met with God. They saw the glory of God, sometimes called the Shekinah of God. And it was, it was the top of Mount Sinai was embroiled in fire and smoke and thunder. And it was a massive sight. And they saw Moses go up there and they come back with the Ten Commandments. And they said, okay, we'll be the people of God. And they accepted that law code, the law of Moses. And then they made their way. God sustained them with miraculous gifts of food and water. And then they made their way to the promised land. This all happened in about a year's time. And at the steps of the promised land, at the entrance to the promised land where God had told them, I'm taking you there and I'm going to give it to you, they refused to enter. They rebelled because they were afraid because the promised land was already inhabited with some very powerful people. And God's anger burned. And as a result, God said that that entire generation of people, anyone 20 years or older, would not see the promised land. They would be forced to wander around in the wilderness. That's the story of Numbers 14, and I believe that that's the context of Psalms 90. That's what Moses had in, in, in his mind as he wrote Psalms 90. But more than just a, a psalm or a song about that event, it's also, Psalms 90, a glimpse into the heart and into the mind of Moses. One of the most important figures in all of human history. We get a sense of his take on God, on life, on people, and what really matters. My wife and I had the fortune of taking a day date a couple weeks ago. Those of you who are married, you know how awesome day dates are. We had the kids all farmed out. It was just the two of us, which is uh, something that's not happened in 19 years. Almost. Or it seems that way anyways. And we went down to the California Science Center because we wanted to see the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit. Because I'm a major history buff and I love stuff like that. The Dead Sea Scrolls are maybe the most important uh, uh, archaeological find of the 20th century. They, their discovery basically put the nail in the coffin on, on, um, on the debate over whether the Bible we read is historically the same as the Bible that was read in Jesus' time and even beyond. Some of the writings are older than Jesus. Now, the exhibit was very cool. It's not very big, and I encourage you to go and check it out. It's awesome. They got all kinds of artifacts from the era and the area and different time periods. Uh, and, and, and if you can, watch the, the movie on, on the city of Jerusalem. That's really cool, too. And it, you can get it all for one price. Um, I don't get a, a, any kind of kickback for that. I'm just plugging it because it's really cool. <laughs> but when you go in, you know, they don't have a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They just have like, uh, it's like a round thing. And, and there's these little windows. And each window, maybe 10 or 11 windows, there's a little fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They don't take the whole collection. There's a lot of them. And they don't just send them all around. They just give you kind of a sampling. And one of the things that struck me, one of the things that was so neat to see 
was, you know, you'd bend down and it's kind of dimly lit, it's dark, and you look in this little thing and there they are, these little fragments, sometimes this big, maybe this, this much kind of holes and torn, and you can see that the text actually, yeah, they go, they read, they read this way, right? They read the wrong way. So, but you can see how meticulous the scribes were. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. The characters are so, so perfectly straight. They're same size. I mean, it's, it's really quite, and then it's really small. It's like they were all engineers, right? They all, they really tiny little type. You ever seen an engineer take notes? It's little tiny notes. It's really small. I, I don't know why I didn't realize that would be the case, but it's very, very small, very precise, very exact. It was really neat. And one of the things that, that jumped out at me was that it was handwritten. I think one of the challenges we have living in our era, as, bl- as awesome as it is and as blessed as we are to be here, we, are li- we live in an era of mass-produced produ- mass materials. So, for instance, the Bible you have in your hand or the, or the words that are up on the screen, these are, these are mechanically produced characters. And, and I really believe that Sometimes there's, because of that, there's a distance put between us and the actual author of what we're reading. And there was something about seeing the the scribe's own handwriting on the paper that really helped me bridge that gap. It really helped me connect that there was a person on the other end of this some 2,000 years ago that wrote that down. And so as we begin our study of Psalms 90, I want to ask you to do me one favor. I want you to bridge that gap with me. I want you to imagine for a minute that we're reading the handwritten words of Moses, the man of God. It was a prayer that he penned 3,500 years ago. Let's go to God in prayer as we study Psalms chapter 90. Father, we ask for your spirit to be upon us and help us to get into the, into the same time frame, into the same shoes as your servant Moses, so that what we read becomes real to us, and we can, we can connect to it emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look at Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord... You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here we see in the very opening words of Psalm 90, this, this, this prayer that Moses penned to the Lord, his take on God. You know, a little bit about Moses. You can take his life and divide it into three segments. There was the first 40 years where he lived in a home that wasn't his. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and he was raised as a prince of Egypt. Even though he had contact with his own mom, he was raised in a different household. Then the next 40 years, the second 40, he had to flee Egypt because he had committed a crime and he left and he lived in the desert of Midian where he lived in someone else's household, the father, his own father-in-law. He married a woman and moved in and lived with his father-in-law Jethro. And then at the end of those 40 years, God called him to go back to Egypt and to free the slaves out of Egypt. And he did. And then as a result of their sin in, in Numbers chapter 14, which we just read, he spent the last 40 of years of his life wandering around in the desert, living in a tent. 
He was a man without a home. Much like the, the Israelite community, the Jewish community, being former slaves in Egypt, were a people without a country. Yet when Moses looked at God, he saw his home. When he addressed God, he saw him as his dwelling place, not only here and now, but for generations, for eternity. God was his home. I love the the usage of the words here. The word Lord, if you look at it, it's spelled capital L and then small letters O-R-D. And there's a reason why in, the, in, in this version of the Bible they do that. They're denoting different words used for Lord. And in this case, that word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And it means master. Now, it's a common word. Sometimes you read in the Bible, it says a servant girl took water and gave it to her master. That was Adonai. But here, it's not Master in reference to a person, it's master in reference to God. He's the master, capital M, master. When you think of master, you think of the head of the household. Moses addressed God by one of his titles that he knew him to be. He knew him to be the head of his own household. That was the kind of connection Moses had to the Lord. He was like a father to him even though he was not raised with his own father and he never got to live with his own father. God was a father to him and he was living in God's dwelling place. It had nothing to do with where he physically was on the earth. It had everything to do with how he understood who God was to him. The second word that's really interesting is at the end of verse two where he says God. Now that word is a different word referring to the same entity but it's the word Elohim. And it's also a word that sometimes was used to describe gods, little g, like pagan gods and stuff. But in this case, it's capital Elohim. And it, may, and it refers to the God who created. What's interesting about this word is it's a plural word. So it's kind of like saying creators. Look at the language he uses. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth you or you brought forth the whole world. Moses had this, this understanding of God as both the master of the, the head of the household, but also the one who gave birth to the world, to him and to everyone else. Now neither of these words have a have a they're actually both of these words are actually masculine in, in, in the sense that their gender is a masculine word. But the Hebrews at the time, didn't have a neutral word. They didn't have a word, it. So they either had a gender male or a gender female word. That was it. But what we see here is that Moses, when he thought of God, his take on God was he saw him as his mother and his father. The head of the household and the one who gave birth to everything that existed. I find that remarkable, coming from a man who didn't get raised with his own family. And at no point did he get to live with his own family. He was a man without a home, yet he had his mother and father, the eternal, the everlasting Adonai, Elohim, God. Do you find yourself thinking of God 
as your home? Or do you separate the two? I know for me, I own a home and uh, we've actually, I've shared this before. We've been doing some work on our home and it's still going on. It like never ends. And you just spend a lot of money. But we want it to be nice. But, you know, after a year of constantly doing work and just spending money, there's a point in time where I go, you know, I don't like this home. I want to like this home, but it's a pain in the rear, this home. But not so with God. God wants to be our dwelling place. He wants to be your mother and father. He wants to be the one that you, have, that you go to when you need a place to go. And the great thing about God is he's everlasting. And he spans time, place, and anything else. He's always there for you as he was always there for Moses. Verses 3 through 6. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So we see Moses' take here on God. He saw God as his dwelling place, as his home, as his eternal mother and father figure. And now we see Moses and his take on life. And the thing that you want to see in this section of the psalm is the language that he uses. He talks about returning to dust. He mentions how a thousand years is like a day or a watch in the night, which was only four hours long. He talks about being swept away. There's a sense of suddenness. All of these images point to one, uh, um, one thing that he wants to communicate to you and I and to the people of Israel as they were wandering around in the desert. And that is, life is short. It's too short. The problem is, we have a hard time realizing that. And I don't know why that is. It's almost like we get glimpses of it. Like, for instance, right now with my mom's accident, it's like, wow, life is short. Think about when I lost my dad. Wow, life was too short. I think about my next door neighbor who has uh, MS. Life is short. I think about the next door neighbor after that. The only other original owner of a house on the street that I live on, my parents owned the house originally, this other neighbor did. So I grew up with this family. The mom has cancer. My father-in-law has Parkinson's. My, My own cousin, a year younger than me, is terminally ill with cancer. And in these moments, I go, man, life is short. But outside of stuff like that, somehow I think I got time. Somehow I think there's tomorrow's just going to be there. It's just going to happen. I can relate to the words of Moses. I appreciate Moses speaking to me 3,500 years ago. Hey, it's short. I don't know why we do that. It's fascinating. Maybe it's left over from our creation. You know, we were created to live forever. In the Garden of Eden, everything was was perfect, and Adam and Eve were going to just live. There was no death. And maybe we still have that in us, that this this sense of something is going to continue on. We're going to just keep living. I think it's just in us. It's remnants of how we were created. But the reality is life is short. It's too short. And it's important that we realize that. That's something Moses wanted us to know. 
He wanted the Israelites to know, the Jewish people, as they wandered around in the desert outside the promised land, he wanted them to know life was short. Imagine that as he walked those years in that desert, waiting for an entire generation of people to die. And he just watched friend after friend fall and pass away and return to dust in that desert. And yet I'm sure that people in his time still struggled with realizing how short life was. The question that you got to ask yourself is why? What happened? If God created us to last longer, why is life so short? Well, Moses has an answer in verse 7 through 11. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass away, quickly pass, and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Why is life short? Why was it cut tragically short? Because of sin. God had designed everything to work perfectly and to endure. And when Adam and Eve sinned, death entered at that moment. And life began to get shorter and shorter until it's normal, normalized out for whatever reason at 70 to 80 years, which is about right, apparently, as Moses understood it. And it's not only short, but it's full of trouble and hardship and difficulty. We've got aches and pains. We have accidents that happen, things break down. It's short and it's full of trouble. And it's that way because it's of, of sin. Now, I'm not saying my mom sinned and therefore she got into a car accident. I'm not saying my neighbor sinned and therefore got MS. No, what I'm saying is because sin is a reality, things break. Accidents happen. People deteriorate. We're not, we're not making a direct connection. It's a general connection. Everything that was designed to endure is not any longer. You know, for the Israelites, as they wandered around in that desert for 40 years, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Man, they blew it. They were about to enter the promised land. And they got fearful and they rebelled. And their consequence was to wander around and that entire generation to die in the desert. It really makes me, it really highlights what Moses said there in verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger. Boy, what a mistake we just made. You know, that's how I feel sometimes, pretty much all the time when I blow it. When I sin, I make a mistake and I realize, oh my goodness, what an idiot am I? Because I, I get that. I get that there's power here that I've messed with and that I deserve a consequence. But you might say, why this? Why that consequence? Well, 
I don't know, but I will say this. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the empire of Egypt fall before their very eyes. They saw the entire army get swallowed up by the Red Sea. They saw the Shekinah of God on Mount Sinai. They were fed in the desert. They were given water in the desert all in a year's time. And they wouldn't cross into the promised land. Sometimes the consequence of our sin is significant because God expects more from us than we realize. I want you to think for a minute about your own life. What has God done for you in your life? Just think through the different times. At at Quentin's baptism, his mom shared some great stories about all the times Quentin nearly died. And there's a, there's a story in there, right? There's a message in there. If, he, if God protected him through all those troubles, maybe Quentin ought to not take that for granted, right? Maybe Quentin ought to be a little more faithful. Well, if God has protected you from a lot of problems in your life or he's rescued you from a lot of problems in your life, maybe you ought to be more faithful. You ever think of that? Maybe he expects more of you than you are expecting of yourself. And that is a grievous sin to God. Because it's saying to him, I don't trust you. That's in essence what we say when we don't live according to our faith. I don't trust you enough. And God's like, I saved your life here. I healed you there. I brought this person into your life to help you there. I gave you that job over here. I mean, I, I worked every detail out and you don't trust me? Sometimes we forget that God takes things personal. Much like we do when we do something for a friend or a person in our life. I mean, think of any parent here. I look at my kids and when they mess up, I'm like, I'm going to strangle you. (laughs) Do you not know what I have done for you? I still remember the day my kids were born and watching my wife go through all that pain. And there's a lot of pain, not to scare anybody, but there's a lot of pain. And the only thing I could think of was if he does anything mean to her, I'm going to beat him silly. (laughs) Does he not know? Yet we are comfortable disrespecting God. Allowing others to be disrespectful of our God. We live in a society that has turned its back in rebellion against God. And it's happening in light speed, record time, faster than it's done, I think, in any other generation. I didn't live in other generations, so I don't know. But I think so. And people are, are celebrating the inhumanity, the rebellion. And are we condoning it? Are we celebrating it with them? Are we cheering them on? Or are we calling them to repent? Are we putting the truth before them and pleading with them before something worse happens to them? This isn't a personal attack against anyone. I'm not mad at you, as Tupac said. (laughs) 
concerned about you. I'm worried for you. I'm worried for what these, these decisions that's happened in our culture and in our society, what they're doing to us. If only we knew the power of your anger. I think if we just as Christians could start there, if we as believers in God could just start there. Now, I don't want to go down that road because I don't know what God might do to me. It's not where we end, but that's a good place to start. I, I think our lives might be quite better. I think there might be some improvement. I can't tell you that the curse of sin is going to be taken away. The Israelites weren't allowed to go into the promised land. The Jews weren't. That generation, anyways, weren't allowed to go into the promised land. That, that door was closed. Their fate was sealed on that one. But they didn't need to keep sinning. And isn't that what Moses is kind of saying? All right, we blew it. But let's not just keep sinning here. Let's not forget that we have a God who loves us, who's like our mother and our father. He's been there for us through a generation to generation. Let's not turn our backs on him. He's still our home. And we can make the best of it out here in the desert. So maybe what I'm trying to tell you, what I, what I get out of this, this message from Moses, what he, what he says to me when I look at the words on the page and I imagine him writing it, I hear him saying, Joe, Stop sinning, please. Yes, you've blown a lot of things in your life, but just stop it. Stop here. It can get better. No, you may not get everything you want, but it'll be better. And the same is true for you. If you just stop sinning, things do get better. There's still consequences. I don't take those away. But things do get better. Can I get an amen? Is anybody here who has gone through a process of repentance in their life going to deny that it got better? I, I'm not sure. Is there anybody here who has gone through a process of repentance in their life that their life didn't get better? Is there anyone here that wants to go back? Oh, you know, I miss being drunk every night. It was awesome when I used to stumble down and fall down and hit my head and not know where I woke up. I'm looking forward to that. There's no one here like that, at least no one that's repented. And if you haven't, then I want to beg you, please do. It's, it's a good thing, and it's worth it. And, it. and, you know, you may still be in the desert in terms of consequences, but it's better than being in the desert sinning and having more consequences. Verses 12 through 17. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We get to the end of the psalm and we see Moses turning his attention to God again. And, you know, he's, he's acknowledged, look, you're our dwelling place. You're the master. You're the creator. We're, you know, you're everlasting. We're finite. We're sinners. 
And he turns back to God and he says to him, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And he talks about wisdom, compassion, unfailing love, and favor. All the things that that generation of people would need wandering around in that desert. In a word, what they needed was God's grace. And the fact of the matter is, if we want to impact the world around us, because there are people today wandering around in the desert, they need God's grace too. That's really what matters. I would go so far as to say that, honestly, it's the only thing that matters. That's what we need at this time. I need it in my life, you need it in your life, and the people around us need it in their lives. We need God's grace. You know that desert where they wandered around? You know what the name of it was? Zin. What word do we get from Zin? Sin. They were wandering around in the desert of their own sin. What a great description of sin. And and for those that that understood Moses and, and realized, okay, well, that's our consequence and, and we're going to need to get our acts together and we need to, we're going to need to make better. There wasn't much they could do about their location, but there was a lot they could do about where they looked. And they had to t- start looking to God. They had to start looking for the grace of God in that dry, miserable place. And that's what Moses is calling them to do. Turn to God. Find God's favor, because in the desert of sin, that is all that really matters. As a matter of fact, even if they had made it into the promised land, God's grace was still all that really matters. God's grace. My favorite part of this psalm is found in verse 13. I want you to look at the word Lord there. You notice anything different about it? It's all in caps. And again, the people that did the NIV, this version of the Bible, they did that on purpose because they wanted you to know that this is a different word from the word Adonai and the word Elohim. This is the word Yahweh. We spell it in English, Y-H-W-H. There it is in Hebrew. One of the coolest things about the Dead Sea Scrolls, I ran around from little window to window. I was looking for that. I wanted to see it. Why is that word significant? What makes that word so important? And why did Moses use it here when he cried out to God and said, relent? It's almost as if Moses, you know, the consequence of what had happened and the weight of his sin and the shortness of his life was just bearing down on him. And he turned to God and he said, relent, Lord. Why did he use that word? What's different about that word than the other words he could have used? Elohim, Adonai. Well, this is the word that God used many years earlier in Moses' life when he was in the desert of Midian, just before he was called by God to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. Moses was wandering around herding some sheep and he saw a bush that was burning, but the bush wasn't burning up and he went over to it because he thought that was curious. He heard a voice speak to him. It was the voice of God. They had a conversation. God told Moses, lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses said, well, who should I tell them sent me. And God said, Yahweh. We don't exactly know how to pronounce it because that's all consonants. That's our best guess. Yahweh. 
It means I am who I am. You know, the word Adonai meant master, head of the household. It was a title. The word Elohim meant creator or creators who ruled the universe. It was a title. This is a name. This is God's name. I couldn't see it. I don't have the original Psalms 90 that Moses wrote. The closest I could get was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's why I wanted to see it, because that's God's name. It's when, think of it like this. Someone knocks on your door and they say, hey, I'm here, I'm selling vacuums and I want to speak to the head of the household. Uh, And and then you come and you meet them and they say, oh, hi, how are you? What do you do? I'm a minister. Oh, you're a minister. So I've got two titles. I'm the head of the household and I'm a minister. And then in the course of the conversation, at some point, the guy looks at me and says, Joe, you really need this. That's what Moses just did. Father, master, head of the household, ruler, creator of all. I am who I am. I need you right now. He spoke to God and he addressed him with his name. That kind of intimacy only comes when you feel the weight of your situation. When you are brought to your knees because there's nowhere else to turn and the world has just worn you down or you have made such a tremendous mistake or whatever the case may be, but you find yourself with nowhere else to go and that is when you say, Yahweh, God, I call you by your first name. We're on first name basis now because I need you. It's what you say when you talk to your friend and you're really desperate. You don't say, hey, best friend. You don't say BFF. You say John or Sally or Bob or whatever their name is. And that's what Moses did here. He spoke to God personally. And he asked for a personal favor. God, relent. You can take the the words away. How long will it be? Have compassion satisfy us, make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us. I mean, don't you see the yearning in Moses' words here in the use of the word Yahweh? I need you now because it's bad. Moses had what, what what we call a personal relationship with God. Now, I'm going to tell you something slightly embarrassing about myself. I've been a minister almost 20 years now, and I have never really understood what the heck that phrase meant. Personal relationship with God. What what does that even mean? I hear it all the time. I've said it many times. Maybe you think you have it. Maybe you think, well, it means we're personal. Sure, okay. But we hear these words so much, we almost lose sight of them. We almost forget what they mean. Kind of like when we read the Bible and we forget that there's actually a person behind that. So what does it mean? Well, let me me tell you a funny story. In the old days, when there were kings, if a king converted to a religion, everyone in his kingdom became that religion. That's just the way it was. So if your king converted to Islam, then everybody else became Islamic. If your king converted to Catholicism, everyone else became Catholic. If your king converted from a, if he was a Viking warrior and he got converted, then everybody else became Christians. It wasn't personal. 
it wasn't your choice. It wasn't your decision. You just did it because you were under the reign of that king. And if you didn't do it, he might chop your head off. So you just did it. It kind of happens today. A lot of people are born. I, I grew up, I didn't go to church ever, but I was half Sicilian, so we were Roman Catholic. And I told everybody that, oh, I'm Roman Catholic. I didn't even go to church. People do that today. They're Muslim because they were born Muslim. They're Jewish because they were born Jewish. They're Christian because they were born Christian. What they're missing is the personal decision. They're just lumping themselves in with someone else's decision. Well, my dad did this, so that's what I am. Or the king did this, so that's what we are. But you know, throughout the history of the Christian church, there was always a group of people pushing against that. There were always people who were, who were saying, no, no, no. It's not about being a part of a, of a greater community that converted. You have to make a decision for yourself. That's what a personal relationship with God means. You've chosen it. It wasn't chosen for you. And that's what Moses had. He had a personal relationship with God. And so he could use the word Yahweh because they were on a name-to-name -name basis with one another. There was nothing hidden. In the beginning of my, before I came up, I showed you a little video clip of a song. I love that song. It's by a, a band named City and Color. I listen to it a lot. It's called Thirst. Anyways, the song is, I think, about a breakup or something. I'm not sure. But there's a line in that song, and I don't know if you caught it, but it, it said, gracefully cursed, I thirst. I thought long and hard about that statement when I heard the song. I thought that was such a curious way to put something. And so I... I really thought about it, and then it dawned on me what that means and how it relates to Psalm 90. The consequences we feel in this life, the trouble, the hardship, the weight of our sin, whatever it is, the negatives in this life are there because of a curse. A curse that was put on all of humanity, and that curse is called sin. And we all labor under that curse. That's why accidents happen. It's why people get sick. It's why the world's falling down around us. It's why I can't get my backyard fixed within a year's time. Because this place is just cursed. But that curse is also why I thirst. Because I want something better. I still long for something perfect. I still want the promised land. And I really believe that even though this generation of people had to endure the curse, a, a, a terrible curse, it, it wasn't the end for them. Because those that thirsted for God would cry out to him, Yahweh, and they would seek his favor. And the same is true for us. When we feel the weight of the world on us, when we feel the weight of our own sin on us, when things don't go our way, it's a curse, but it's gracefully cursed because that's when we thirst. That's when we look to God. I started off telling a joke about Sherlock Holmes, the funniest joke in the world, I might add. And the funny thing about the joke is Watson didn't notice that the tent was missing. You know, the, the biggest, most obvious thing 
But let's not be like Watson. Let's not miss what matters most. The grace of God. Thank you.